Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. What is up, you guys? I am so, so excited. My book, The Carnivore Code, is going to be released on February 25th. It is currently on Amazon. You can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to see the page there. The print book will be available on the 25th. The ebook is available for pre-order. I am currently recording the audiobook right now. It will be done by the time this podcast comes out, and I am hoping the audiobook will also be available on February 25th. Mark your calendars two weeks from today. The whole shebang drops, and I'm super, super stoked about all of that. Thank you to everyone who pre-ordered. Those books will probably ship this week, and I imagine you will have those books days before anyone else, and I would love to hear what you think. Send me your feedback, tag me on Instagram, and I will repost all of that because this is a very exciting time, you guys. Super exciting. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes. We have over 500 reviews in less than a year. Every week, this podcast is top 10 in health and medicine. It is so exciting. I just feel so grateful that I can bring value to you guys. Please let me know how I can continue to do that. My website is carnivoremd.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there, which is the Fundamental Health Insider. That came out this week. All right. My guest is none other than Terry Walls. She is an amazing individual who originally did her residency in internal medicine. She is a certified functional medicine practitioner and has actually received the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions to research clinical care and patient advocacy. She had a pretty darn severe autoimmune disease. She had progressive multiple sclerosis, was in a wheelchair for many, many years, and has been able to reverse that for the most part in herself with dietary change. And as you will hear in this, uh, in this podcast, she feels that a lot of her autoimmune disease may have been due to a low-fat vegetarian diet. So we dig into all of that. We dig into the microbiome. We dig into what things she made, uh, what changes she made in her diet that improved her health. We kind of get into those details there. And then we, we wrap a little bit about the carnivore diet, her concerns. We kind of have a little point-counterpoint. It's a super friendly, fun conversation. And I really appreciate the work that Dr. Walls is doing. I'm so grateful that she came onto the show this week. And at the end of the podcast, you will hear that she and I are conspiring. We are scheming about some future carnivore studies, which really need to be done because I think both she and I are so interested in autoimmune disease and how we reverse this and the potential applications of a carnivore diet for this set of illnesses. So super exciting stuff, you guys. Other exciting stuff is the work that my brethren, my people at Belcampo and White Oak Pastures are doing in regenerative agriculture. I'm hoping to do a lot more podcasts on this soon. Specifically, Belcampo is a farm in Northern California. It's in Wairaca, and they are doing rotational grazing, regenerative agriculture, grass feeding, grass finishing. They have been shown to be putting more organic matter into the soil, putting carbon into the soil. They are life cycle negative in terms of carbon when uh, these analyses have been done. You can find them at belcampo.com. They have an online store and some of the best meat I have ever, ever eaten. It is certified organic, regenerative, carbon negative, 
carbon increasing, uh, organic matter increasing in the soil. And for listeners of this podcast, they are offering a special deal. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD to get 20% off of all their stuff till the end of the month. They also have liver, which is something that all my peeps are always looking for. They have uh, thymus as well, and they have heart. We're trying to get more organ meats. And in the future, I'm super excited about bringing them uh, into the fold with an organ grind. But you should check out the bone and ribeye steak. The tri-tip is amazing. Seriously, these, this meat is fantastic, and these organs are some of the most pristine I've ever had. You can also check out their restaurants, which are in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And if you do do that, I would recommend the cowboy ribeye. It's two pounds, and it is phenomenal. You all know that I believe strongly that regenerative agriculture is the incontrovertible argument for using ruminant animals on this planet in a sustainable way, and I could not be more happy, excited, proud to support farms like Belcampo. So check them out. Check out what they are doing. Try their meat. Let me know what you think because it is so good, and we vote with our dollars. Nourish yourselves. Nourish your planet. Nourish your family. You guys, this is how we thrive. This is how future generations of humans remain on this planet is by returning to these sort of rotational grassland ecosystems that are mirroring what buffalo used to do on this planet. So check out bellcampo.com, B-E-L-C-A-M-P-O. Use the code CARNIVOREMD for 20% off. The other super exciting thing is that White Oak Pastures continues to crush it as well. They are in Georgia. You guys know about them if you've listened to this podcast before. Sixth generation, 150 years in the family, that farm. In the last 20 years, they've been doing regenerative agriculture because Will Harris, the owner, is a amazing individual, very uh, aware, very foresighted, very progressive in his thinking. And they have been able to increase the amount of organic matter in their soil from 0.5 to 5%. When you come to White Oak Chella in May, which is May 1st to 3rd, you can find this on the White Oak website under events. I want to see you guys all there. It is a celebration of regenerative agriculture. We are going to be throwing axes, having bonfires, eating amazing meat, spending time in community, looking at this progressive, really groundbreaking farm, you will see the difference between the dirt on Will's farm and the dirt on his neighbor's farm. It is such a profound, uh, striking contrast. And this is the nutrients that goes into the animals, both here at White Oak, at Belcampo, in all of the farms across the country, many of whom I still want to support and I'm hoping I can get to and visit who are doing this type of agriculture. You can find them at whiteoakpastures.com. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off your first order, or you can go to info.whiteoakpastures.com front slash carnivoremd for my landing page for all the listeners of this podcast. And you can find out what is on special this month. Every month, there are 15% items there on that webpage, and you can use the code carnivore15 there. I hope that you will all join us at White Oak Chella, May 1st to 3rd at that farm. And I am just so proud to be supporting White Oak Pastures, Belcampo, and hopefully many more of these regenerative farms This is the message that we need to get out, you guys. This is what I believe in so deeply. When you walk on these farms and you see what is happening with these animals, you will never again be led astray or confused by all of the political, the psychological rhetoric from plant-based advocates who are claiming that ruminants are hurting the planet. You can clearly see that the earth is thriving in these places. The dirt is so brown, the grass is so green, and the people are beautiful, and the animals are healthy. This is the way we do it, you guys. This is the way we move forward. Belcampo.com, whiteoakpastures.com, CarnivoreMD at both of those places will get you some serious discounts. Let me know what you think. Tag me. 
nourish yourselves and your families in the deepest way. The other way that I think we can all nourish ourselves and our families is by eating more organ meats. You guys know that I love this. I talk about this with Terry Walls in this podcast. Getting organ meats is so crucial, but sometimes it's difficult if we're traveling, if we don't have access to these things, or there are organs that we can't get or that we are not necessarily um, super excited about eating. And this is where Ancestral Supplements comes in. Ancestralsupplements.com, they are creating grass-fed, grass-finished organ complex supplements that are freeze-dried to preserve all the nutrients in a gelatin capsule. It makes it so convenient to eat. And as Dr. Walls talks about in this podcast, she takes these. She takes desiccated organ supplements when she goes traveling. She knows the value of liver, and she can't always get it when she's traveling and doing stuff. And so when she's home, she eats liver and other organs. When she's traveling, she uses these organ complex uh, supplements and really finds benefit with them. I will let you guys know that there are two exciting things that Ancestral Supplements has had recently happen. They have a new supplement, the male optimization formula, the MOFO. And this one is made from testicle and prostate and liver. And I am fascinated by this one. You guys know that I am interested in eating testicles and just eating nosotail in general. Um, try that one if you are interested in male optimization. The other thing that's exciting is they have now have intestines back in stock. Intestines were one of their best-selling supplements, probably because when we freeze-dry the intestines of animals, there are all sorts of good growth factors in there that can benefit humans who have issues with their gut. There are some amazing testimonials for all of their supplements, but look at the intestine supplements, guys. This is amazing. So check out intestines. Check out MoFo from Ancestral Supplements. You can use the code SALADINOMD at the their Shopify site for 10% off, they are putting back in what the modern world has left out. And as we know, the modern world has left out many, many things. The last sponsor of this podcast is Native Deodorant. You can find them at nativedeodorant.com. They are creating simple, effective, clean products that we use to not smell like cavemen every day. They have over 8,000 five-star reviews from their customers. They are formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. They use natural ingredients such as coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch. They don't do any animal testing, and they have free shipping and returns. You know what? Natural deodorant works, especially from Native, and it can provide us with an amazing alternative than putting things that are xenoestrogens in our armpits, which are certainly going to get absorbed. And we don't want that. They have coconut and vanilla, which is the most popular scent, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, eucalyptus and mint, all kinds of great stuff there. I use this stuff, guys. It keeps me from smelling like a caveman. And that is amazing. So I think you guys should think about what is going into your armpits. You should not be using things that have xenoestrogens, things like have parabens, all these other kind of things. Native deodorant is a great option here. Check them out. Uh, you can get 20% off your first purchase if you visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code SALADINO at checkout. And again, they have free shipping and returns. Don't want to smell like a caveman, but you want to live like a caveman or a cavewoman, and you want to kick butt like a caveman or a cavewoman. So check out nativedeodorant.com. On to the podcast. I appreciate you all. Listen after for what's going on with me. All right, we are live. Dr. Terry Walls, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Before the podcast, we were rapping a little bit about the carnivore diet and ketosis. So we're going to get into all kinds of cool stuff. But I just want to let people know who are listening to this on audio that there's a video that's associated with us with this on YouTube. And behind Terry is a bookshelf with uh, multiple copies of her book, The Walls Protocol, which is going to be re-released in March 17th, the new and updated version. And four, no, I see five poop emojis. 
Yes, I have, and I have even more that are sort of hidden behind my head. We have many, many poop emojis. People know I love that. So I get poop soap, uh, poop squeezies, poop pillows, poop hats. Uh, I have even more pat, more poop in my office at the university as well. So, and I've heard you talk about this in your presentations, your, your PowerPoint presentations, you know, make a snake, make a good poop. One of the things that's so interesting for me is that, and we'll probably get into this in the podcast, that on a carnivore diet, what I've observed is that a lot of people's GI stuff gets much better and mm-hmm. that we can, we can make good poops with or without fiber. So we'll probably get into that. But tell me about your, your, your predilection for the poop emoji and, and why this is so central for you. Well, um, I, I think we know that you and I have about, what, 23, 25,000 genes that we got from mom and dad. And we got 5 million to 10, uh, 10 million genes from our mom's microbiome. Uh, and that over the millions of generations, when a spontaneous mutation occurs, that uh, our, one of our ancestral mothers couldn't make compound XYZ, uh, but her bacteria could. So at that moment, her genome gets simplified, and an important uh, process got exported from her genome to her bacterial, her microbiome genome. And so over millions and millions of generations and these random mutations, our DNA has been simplified and we rely on our bacteria to do many of these processes that are important to uh, optimal health. Uh, And and so my interpretation of the research is that uh, we seem to have a a very clear identification that our hunter-gatherers have different microbiome than we have that's far more rich, far more diverse, and actually includes many microbes that we think of as pathogens. So it's a, it's a community of microbes that sustain us. Uh, and so uh, this is to remind me and remind my patients and my public followers that I am a, we're all an ecosystem. And the better stewards we are of our ecosystem, the more likely we are to have a healthy microbiome that can do all of the processes that are necessary and required for optimal health. So, you know, I think we need to monitor that, but not with a fancy lab test. It's with simply standing up and looking at your poop and assessing the quality of your poop. That gives you immense feedback. Are you the way uh, that is more aligned with health more aligned with disease processes. Yeah, I think that I think that we agree on that concept. It'll be interesting to dig into that a little more and see if we have disparate views on how to how to cultivate how to, achieve, or that. How to yeah. achieve that or how to curate the microbiome. I think that there is so much discussion about the microbiome now. And one of the things I talked about on a recent podcast with Chris Kresser was what I believe to be a premature and false notion that we absolutely need plant fiber to curate a diverse microbiome. So many of the studies that we see that suggest that that's the case are epidemiology. They're observational epidemiology comparing kids in Burkina Faso to uh, urban Italian children. And if we look at the interventional studies with fiber or the removal of fiber, we don't really see a change in the alpha diversity. And I love that you brought this up. We definitely do see that ancestral peoples have a much more diverse microbiome. And as I talked about on that podcast and a few others, We know that a diverse microbiome is not in and of itself indicative of a, quote, healthy microbiome because we can can have lots of proteobacteria or other 
gram negative aerobic organisms that can be pathogenic that are that are causing it to look like there's diversity but there's not really a good collection of organisms the the real um, need that we have is uh, we have all these processes that must occur for optimal health Uh, and so when people are getting uh, fired up and excited about uh, their microbiome reports, uh, I, I sort of chuckle because my scientific colleagues were part of my research team, and I debate what is the uh, optimal microbiome, and we admit that the species uh, are probably not that important. It's the processes that the microbiome can do. And so what we really would want to be following is the metabolome. What are the processes that are happening uh, in our bloodstream? And do we have the microbiome that supports all those processes? And that's a very young science. That's an incredibly young science. Um, and, and you know, right now, we're writing uh, multiple grants every cycle to get funding to analyze uh, my freezer and analyze the microbiome from uh, the blood specimens and the urine specimens and the poop specimens that we have from all of my clinical trials. So we can see what are the processes that are changing in the people that don't get well and the processes that are changing in the people that do get well. What are some of these metabolic processes or processes that you feel like the microbiome needs to be doing for us? So what are some of the markers you're looking for in the metabolome to give you clinical endpoints here? Well, the reality is we don't know. You know, the metabolome, uh, the companies that we're talking to will do uh, 20,000 different metabolites, some of mm-hmm. which are named, uh, another, about half of which are named, and half of which are not named but keep showing up. And so they just have a numeric value. Mm-hmm. That's, this is a really young science. Now, if you look at functional medicine, we have a variety of, of uh, metabolites that we look at for fatty acids, for the Krebs cycle, for uh, dysbiosis. Uh, for fatty acids, uh, vitamin markers, they're, they're helpful in the functional medicine docs use, use those and give people you know, various supplements to try and optimize those. But I think you and I would say uh, that, well, that's helpful, but it's incomplete. What really is aligned with optimal health is when we figure out what is the diet and lifestyle that you eat and perform and live and you'll grow the right microbiome to support the right processes. This is an early science. Uh, it, it, you know, a lot of my functional medicine colleagues use these tests, a lot of supplements to try and get there. Um, I think you and I would agree that um, if we can look at this through the ancestral health lens and think about what is the diet and lifestyle that will get you there. Uh, because that, mo- when I look at the research the epidemiology says these nutrients are, are really helpful. Uh, and so then uh, we clinical scientists decide like, okay, I'm going to test this in, what, in how I know how to test it. Singular molecular pathway, I'll use one nutrient that I'm going to add and or subtract and see the impact. And what nearly always is when you do it one nutrient at a time or even just two or three, the impact is not there. Exactly. This uh, doesn't seem to change clinical outcomes because uh, diet and lifestyle is incredibly complex. Um, So I think uh, assessing food patterns uh, is where we get the answer, not assessing single nutrients. 
I totally agree with that. And I think that the myopic reductionist view fails repeatedly. And mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of excessive or even focused use of supplementation in my practice, nor do I think that it serves the patient, nor do I think that it recapitulates evolutionary progress or ancestral lens. So I love what you're saying there about ancestral themes. And I think it's so interesting to think about the way that we might've eaten. Again, it's conjecture, right? And it's challenging, but I think it's so interesting to think about the way that we might've eaten and to look at that mirrored in ancestral peoples or indigenous peoples who are currently living. And the notion that indigenous peoples have a more diverse microbiome, a lot of people will say this is due to fiber. And I debate that openly saying, you know what, because when we give people fiber, we don't see alpha diversity increase. I suspect that the alpha diversity that's higher in indigenous peoples has to do with dirt and touching animals and butchering animals and being in the sun and all of these other ancestral lifestyle practices that affect the microbiome in ways that we haven't even begun to assess. There was a study that I posted on my Instagram a few weeks ago, I believe it was observational epidemiology, but there is a correlation between sunlight exposure and more diversity in your microbiome. Now, is that reflecting people being outside and being exposed to microbes mm. outside? Is it, is it something that has to do with the ultraviolet light on our skin that is making vitamin D or cholesterol sulfate or endorphins or nitric oxide or other compounds that we don't even know about? But it's just such an interesting idea because even within the functional medicine sphere, um, I'm, I'm disappointed at the reductionist view yeah. that people are mm-hmm, trying mm-hmm, to take. Mm-hmm. And they're really trying, yeah. and even within discussions of the microbiome, people are trying to say, we know what the most healthy microbiome is. And as and you suggested, don't. at we a species that. level, we just don't, right? We, abso- we absolutely don't. Because even at a species level, we have to remember the microbes are swapping genes all the time. So it doesn't mean that that microbe can do the processes that my body needs. Right. Uh, um, uh, my my st- my team is actually working on developing a, a new index to look at these uh, big data sets with actually several new indexes. Uh, one of them, of course, is uh, how Wall's diet is that uh, food pattern. So that'll be a fun uh, index to look at these big data sets with. But we're also developing a processed foods index because uh, when I look at these epidemiologic epidemiology studies, uh, in some of these intervention studies, that uh, diets that, that have been shown prospectively to be helpful, the Mediterranean diet, uh, the paleo diet, uh, uh, some of these, uh, uh, the MIND diet, what, what these are looking at uh, basically is a reduction of processed foods. Uh, and so the dietitian, who's, who's a, also a PhD, is a member of my study team, uh, he and I had these conversations that uh, we think that the common thread is that you're reducing sugar, you're reducing these high glycemic index grains uh, diets. And the more we get the, those uh, modern foods out of our diet, the healthier the individual is. Uh, so uh, that, that'll be it. Um, when we get that constructed, that's going to be a very uh, fun type of analysis to see what the correlation is between processed foods and health outcomes. And you and I, we can have some hypotheses that'll be fun to test that, uh, you know, the, the more processed food, uh, the poorer the clinical outcomes will be. Oh, for uh, sure. So that'll be uh, fun. And of course, we predict that the more pitolithic like your diet is or Mediterranean-like, the healthier the outcomes, the more walls-like the healthier the outcomes. 
Uh, and um, I, I certainly agree with you. It's been a struggle with the functional medicine community and their emphasis on, on testing and supplements. Uh, one of the beauties of my early functional medicine exposure was that my clinical practice was in the VA, in the Veterans Affairs Hospital, so there was no advanced testing, and there were no fancy supplements. You could get fish oil, B vitamins, and a multivite, and that was it. Uh, eventually, we got so we could get Saccharomyces boulardii, but you know that that's my toolkit. So what did I have? I had education about diet, lifestyle, and inspiration. Uh, and we had, ultimately, uh, I was allowed to create a lifestyle clinic where I could practice exactly how I wanted. And I had amazing transformations, stunning success, without fancy testing, without fancy labs, with inspiration, story, possibility, group supports. And my toolkit was changing the diet, getting outside, putting on a step counter, moving more, uh, having more meaning to your life. And we had stunning success. So, uh, you know, I've been pushing in, in the uh, A4M community and the IFM community uh, uh, to be a lecturer uh, there and to stress that, you know, you can have the, uh, stunning success with, with its ancestral health toolkit. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely. I mean, that's probably, the, in my opinion, that's the reason quote, functional medicine works. And to be honest with you, I've gone through a process of repeatedly losing my, re my religion, right? This is an REM song from my childhood. Yes. And so, you know, I was classically trained as an MD. I, just, I, I kind of lost my religion there thinking, ah, oh, the symptom-focused pharmaceutical-based model doesn't work. I found functional medicine, and then I had to lose my functional medicine religion thinking this overly supplement-based focus, this overly testing-based focus doesn't really work. And where I've also landed is sort of thinking about these ancestral ideas and kind of pulling back. And like you're saying, I think we can achieve so much for people without super fancy testing, mm -hmm. without a ton of supplements, with just basic things. We'll talk more about the carnivore yeah, diet yeah. later in this podcast. I do think that there are some people who need a little bit more detail and go beyond those, yeah. those things. And, and there are specific dietary interventions that we need to think about. But I just want to stress for the listener that, that we are totally agreeing that at a basic level, we don't necessarily need a gut test to tell her that our microbiome is healthy. If we don't have gas, bloating, pain, constipation, bleeding with stool, need to use laxatives, and we can stand up from taking a poop and look at it, and it's a healthy poop, people will know what this is, then that's probably a pretty good indicator that things are going well in our gut. Would you agree with that? You know, and the other thing I would agree with, and again, this is uh, my microbiome immunology colleague, who's part of my team, and he his expertise is the microbiome, he would agree that we don't have a lab test that tells you you've got a healthy microbiome. That looking at your poop, can, your, can you poop easily and comfortably without pooping in your pants? If you can achieve that, you, gotta, you, you have as healthy a microbiome as we can understand. That I don't have a test that would give me any more guidance than you're just looking at your poop. Yeah. And so the flip side of that is, what if people don't have that, right? I work with a lot yes. of people who have chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, pain, bleeding, yes. things like that. Yes. I think the real question becomes, how do we fix it if it looks broken? So I would yes. love for you to you know, give us your perspective on that. Um, tell us a little more about the Walls diet 
and maybe sure. a little more about your story and how you arrived at that. And then I'll, I'll maybe offer some, uh, some uh, perspective well, as well. Why don't we start with my story? Because uh, I think that's uh, compelling. I uh, am a conventionally trained internal medicine doc at a university with very conventional approaches to um, uh, complementary alternative medicine, functional medicine, deeply skeptical. Uh, I'm diagnosed with MS in 2000 on the basis of lesions in my spinal cord and one lesion in my brain, uh, MRI, spinal tap, all that stuff. I want to treat my disease aggressively, so I uh, tr seek out the best MS center in the country. I uh, see their best people, take the newest drugs, and go steadily downhill. Now, fortunately, uh, it, I, I'm told about the work of Lauren Cardain. Uh, two years into my diagnosis, I read his books, his papers, and after 20 years of having been a low-fat vegetarian, I uh, decide to embrace being a paleo eater. I give up all grain, all dairy, all legumes, and uh, embrace the uh, paleo diet. I continue to go downhill. I'm in a tilt-reclined wheelchair. I uh, start reading the basic science. I'm experimenting on supplements uh, focused on the mitochondria and on brain cell health. And I figure out that my supplements help my fatigue a little bit, and they slow the speed of my decline. So I'm thrilled. Uh, in 07, I discover the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take their course in neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements. Um, but I'm excited that they're so focused on mitochondria and uh, biochemistry. I, and at, at the summer of 07, I'm so weak, I cannot sit up in a regular chair. I'm having, uh, beginning to have trouble with brain fog. And I have, uh, I've had 27 years of worsening trigeminal neuralgia, those electrical face pains. They're more frequent, more severe, much more difficult to turn off. Uh, and I'm told I'm going to be tr uh, transferred to the traumatic brain injury clinic in six months. And the job's described to me, and I know it's a job I cannot do physically. But, you know, I've discovered uh, functional medicine. I'm sort of integrating my thinking on ancestral health, the, the basic science I'm reading, functional medicine. And then I have a really big, big aha moment. Like, what if I redesign my diet in a very specific way to get my uh, nutrients? Um, and so I, I now have a much more structured paleolithic diet. I, and I, I start that at December 26, 2007. And in January, I go off to this new clinic, and I, and I just observe what people are doing for a week, and then I start seeing these patients. Uh, and I'm going to my tilt-reclined wheelchair. I'm standing up doing an exam, sitting down, making my notes, and I realize at the end of the week, like, oh, my God, I, I actually could do it. Uh, and it's startling. I realize I'm having more energy. My uh, thinking is more clear. And then I realize my, my pain, my face pain is gone. And I start getting stronger. My physical therapist tells me that, yes, you're getting stronger. He advances my exercises. I begin weightlifting. I begin walking again in the hospital. People are stunned. Every time they see me, they're like, oh, my God, Dr. Walls, you're, you're walking. I, and then uh, six months into this, I uh, talked to my family that I want to try riding my bike. And it's actually Mother's Day. Uh, on uh, uh, 2008, I, we ride. My son is going to jog on the left. My daughter is going to jog on the right. My wife is uh, following on her bike. And I'm able to, to bike around the block. My kids are crying. My wife is crying. I'm crying. 
because this feels so miraculous because with your, when you have progressive multiple sclerosis, you, you sort of accept that, uh, and you're told time and time again by all of your treating physicians that there is nothing that we can do to restore your functions, that once they are gone, they are gone forever. And I just bite. Um, so I, it, it changes how I think about disease and health. It changes the way I practice medicine. It ultimately changes the way I do research. Uh, and six months later, I do an 18.5 mile bike ride with my family. It's amazing. Uh, so, you know, and, it's, and it's so clear that the, the current conventional understanding of neurodegeneration, of progressive MS, of relapsing and remitting MS is incomplete. Uh, and then when I start practicing this way in my traumatic brain injury clinic, um, and you know, before when I got there, my partners would, would tell the uh, TBI folks that, well, if you, if you have too much rage, we'll give you antipsychotics. Otherwise, we'll just sort of wait and see what happens. And I come in and say, there's a whole lot we can do, folks. We can do your diet, your lifestyle, and you can repair and regrow, regrow your brain tissue. So it became uh, very clear who I had seen in the track brain clinic because they got better. It was quite dramatic. And then in the primary care clinic, the people that I saw, I'm talking about diet and lifestyle and teaching the residents how to do this and how to get patients inspired and hopeful and willing to go on this journey. And so people are losing weight, blood sugars are normalizing, pain is resolving, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, fibromyalgia, type 2 diabetes, anxiety, depression. Uh, and, and after two years of this, the um, chief of medicine pulls me in and says, you know, we got to take you out of primary care. We, we want you to have your own clinic. And so then we established the uh, Therapeutic Lifestyle Clinic. Um, uh, over, the, uh, over the next three years, uh, we have the, again, we see the sickest folks uh, from the pain clinic from primary care. Uh, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not doing fancy functional medicine testing. I'm not doing fancy functional medicine labs. I'm doing diet and lifestyle. And we have stunning success. So It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Yeah. And I think that this, there are so many pieces of that that I want to highlight. But I'll start with highlighting the notion that Western medicine believes that autoimmune disease of all shapes and sizes is untreatable. And I want the listener to know that that is false. And mm -hmm. so anyone listening to this podcast can look at my story, the work I do, your story, the work you've done, and the incredible contributions of many others in the space, which argue strongly against the fact that autoimmune disease is a, an unchangeable diagnosis. Autoimmune disease is not, is not something that we cannot modify. And we see this with the carnivore diet. Yeah. We see it with the walls diet. And this is what is so exciting to me. And people who know my story will know that the reason I got interested in the carnivore diet was because of my own autoimmune issues and my own sort of fascination and obsession with understanding what is causing autoimmune disease. One of the things that I've heard you say that I completely agree with, and um, I have arrived at pretty much the same conclusion, is that so much of the chronic disease that we see in humans today is autoimmune. Yes. You know, yes. chronic inflammation and autoimmunity are essentially synonyms. Yes. And, and I'm formally trained in psychiatry, did my residency at the University of Washington. And it is not common practice within psychiatry to imagine that psychiatric illness is autoimmune. 
But we know this is the case, and I've talked about this, we won't go down this rabbit hole today. There's so much brain inflammation and brain autoimmunity with depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia. It's all so similar. All of the diseases we see have so many commonalities. And my story, your story, highlight that the biggest lever that we have here is diet and lifestyle. And that's really what this podcast is all about. And so, again, for the listener, autoimmune disease is fixable. It's totally fixable. And so mm-hmm. if you have multiple sclerosis, if you have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, if you have psoriasis, eczema, like I did, depression, anxiety, these are likely, auto, these are autoimmune diseases that are malleable with diet and lifestyle. And so the other thing I want to yes. highlight is that you developed MS after, I believe you said 20 years of a low-fat vegetarian diet. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So many of the clients that I see who have autoimmune disease will go to practitioners and are told, avoid meat, go on a plant-based diet. But I just want to highlight, and I don't know that it's, as a carnivore, as someone that advocates for a carnivore diet. Yeah. 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 I I think they were connected. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. And as someone that advocates for a carnivore diet, part of the hypotheses that I advance is that plants can trigger autoimmunity. So how interesting is it that a low-fat vegetarian diet, which is something that is very in vogue these days and many Mm -hmm. physicians would advocate for you, both you and I believe was connected with the development of your autoimmune syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, you know, and you know, part of as I've uh, more recently been reading a lot more evolutionary biology uh, and uh, and so I'm now thinking about uh, evolutionary principles as I'm modifying my recommendations and as I'm teaching the public and teaching clinicians uh, uh, the interventions that I use. And I want them to understand evolutionary biology as we evaluate, because you and whatever you and I know today, uh, we, have to, we always have to keep evaluating that um, in terms of the additional science, additional observations. And I want us to think about it in terms of the evolutionary principles. Um, what does evolution suggest? Uh, what do our ancestral mothers and fathers suggest? Uh, and the more that I can emulate what I think my ancestral mothers and fathers were doing within the context of today's environment, uh, I think that's the uh, first recommendation that I'll have for folks. And then I may modify that to make incremental steps that are achievable uh, for uh, the patients that I'm serving. And so there's another piece of your story that I want to highlight and dig into here that I think will be illuminating. In 2007, you went on to what you described as a paleolithic diet. You read Lauren Cordain. You know, you know actually it was 2002. I okay. did the Cordain diet. Right. And, you know, I, I love the paleo diet. Right. Uh, but I have to remind everyone that was not enough to recover me. Exactly. And, and I, having- love, I love functional medicine. That was not enough to recover me. I had right. to integrate all of that and sort of redesign it in, in a more synergistic way with the ancestral health principles. And that led to this dramatic, dramatic uh, change. And that's super fascinating. I'm having Lauren Cordain on my podcast. We oh, are perfect. going, to, yeah, we are yeah. going to, we're going to be talking about um, sort of the nuances of how he developed that approach. But let's just dig into this a little bit more. So you did a paleolithic diet in 2002, and most listeners will be familiar with a pale- what a paleolithic mm-hmm. diet was. Yeah, you know, basically I did the AIP. 
Mm -hmm. So you did an autoimmune paleo diet, which Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what you were doing. And then let's, let's really try and understand at a detailed level, what did you change that you think made the, the difference? Because that is a very valuable clinical observation, you know? So you were doing autoimmune paleo, which is yeah. no nuts, no grains, no seeds, no legumes, no dairy. And then that wasn't enough to help. Is that right? It, it was not enough to help. And I was doing supplements uh, for my uh, mitochondria. And that, I did it for you know, six months into this. And then I thought, ah, I'm wasting my money. And I quit. Which supplements my, were you taking for the mitochondria? Um, so uh, B-complex, carnitine, right. uh, creatine, CoQ, mm-hmm. and, and that's already on uh, uh, fish oil. Right. So I, and I thought, oh, I'm waste, wasting my money. So I stopped everything, couldn't get out of bed. And after three days, my wife came back and said, you know, honey, I think you ought to try these again. Uh, and I took them and felt better the next day. And I thought, wow, that was really interesting. So I repeated my experiments in two weeks. Uh, of course, it was open label, but still, I was exhausted for three days, couldn't get out of bed. And so now I'm pumped. Like, oh my God, I'm learning stuff that my neurologist and primary care doc aren't telling me about. Uh, so I'm much more fired up about reading basic science and sort of tinkering with supplements mm-hmm. after that. I'll just mention that those supplements you were taking, CoQ10, carnitine, um, what were the other ones? Creatine. Creatine. These are all, these are meat, right? That's, That's basically meat, meat, That's meat, right? That's yeah. meat. Like, and I talk about this in my book, you know, carnitine, choline, carnosine, you know, CoQ10, uh, you know, creatine. These are all unique nutrients only found in appreciable quantities in animal foods. Okay. So, the, the, so the, the AIP diet wasn't working. How, what, were, what were the changes there? You know, it's sort of interesting. What I ended up doing was uh, pulling back on the meat somewhat. I also uh, was much more meticulous that as only getting organic foods. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, I added liver. You'll like that one. Oh, yeah. I love that. You added liver. I love that. I added liver. Uh, I was much more into uh, mussels, oysters, mm-hmm. clams. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting uh, shellfish. And then on the uh, vegetable sides, I'm much more specific to uh, greens, a big amount of greens every day. Mm-hmm. And that's probably having six cups of greens a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also adding many more uh, things out of the garlic uh, family, uh, in the cabbage family, uh, and mushrooms. I'm really digging into the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Which mushrooms? And, um, I was going for a variety. The, mm-hmm. We had a variety of dried mushrooms and uh, fresh mushrooms, and, you know, shiitake, uh, uh, the white button mushrooms, uh, the crimini mushrooms uh, as well, uh, uh, miyatakis. So whatever mushrooms we had available mm-hmm. in the store, because I, I, I was like, okay, my goal is 200 different plant species uh, in a year. So I was really into maximizing diversity. Hmm. It, it, now, what is um, stunning, so w- what it really ramped up in a dramatic way though, uh, is the greens. Hmm. Which greens? Uh, and, um, so lots of kale, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, collards, uh, parsley, uh, cilantro, uh, uh, mixed lettuce greens, uh, uh, chard, chard uh, not quite as often. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what's really interesting, when I was recovering enough to travel, uh, I remember that next year, I, I recovered enough to travel to present some of our papers and I couldn't take the volume of greens that I was used to. My energy plummeted. Um, 
about 36 hours into the trip. Hmm. So I'm calling back to my wife saying, okay, uh, I, you know, have, have a huge kale salad for me. So she had a bread bowl filled with uh, my massage kale salad. I got home and I ate that whole thing in, in one sitting immediately. Um, so now in retrospect, uh, probably w- I think there's a lot more evidence that vitamin K2, MK4 right. um, is vitally important uh, for brain right. function. And that, you know, early on in my recovery, my brain must be just sucking in the huge amounts of the uh, carotenoids, uh, yes. But I bet the vitamin K2 is vital. But there's and no so vitamin K2 in kale. There isn't, but your bacteria can make it, and then your uh, liver can uh, process it further. Interesting. I wonder what would have happened if you'd increased the liver. There's a, are you familiar with the Rotterdam well, trial? Yes. Well, the, the challenge with the increase, so I, I was having liver once a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenge with liver or the risk with liver is vitamin A. Because there is a low vitamin A, terrible, particularly for autoimmunity, which clearly I have a, a pretty bad case. Uh, and then, you know, a fairly moderate blood level or uh, you, part of the U-shaped curve where your vitamin A intake is good for you. But if you become toxic in vitamin A, um, then you develop uh, pulmonary fibrosis, um, cirrhosis, and you're really screwed because the retinol levels, you can't get them out. Right. At what level do you think that happens, though? My impression is that that's not going to happen with reasonable amounts of liver. Um, Because your SNPs um, will determine how uh, efficiently you're you're utilizing uh, and uh, metabolizing your carotenoids to retinol uh, and absorbing the retinol from the liver that you're eating, Mm -hmm. uh, there's some variation there. My recommendation is uh, six ounces of liver every week, uh, and I'm probably between six to eight ounces uh, routinely myself. Right. Um, I, there are uh, some ways of monitoring that with your retinol esters in terms of toxicity levels. Uh, and so that this is one of the recommendations I would give you for the carnivore diet is to find a way to monitor your retinol levels so you don't inadvertently overshoot. I, I think that's the haz- one of the potential hazards for uh, uh, the carnivore diet is to overshoot uh, the retinol and end up with the pulmonary fibrosis and cirrhosis. Yeah, I think that I think that that's something we need to research much more because I think that uh, a food like liver that has been prized by our ancestors throughout of evolution is unlikely to be causing any significant human toxicity at reasonable doses. Of course, eating polar bear liver with you know that has a hundred times more concentration of vitamin A may be problematic. Or there's you know potentially those polar bear livers were contaminated with cadmium. I don't think we really know. But we, the vitamin A we, question we don't is know. quite interesting. I, mean, I think I think the vitamin A uh, is an important question, and uh, having a way of monitoring the toxicity and the retinol esters would be very helpful for the carnivore diet. Yeah. I just now, think that uh, I just think that there are much better sources of vitamin K than than kale, and I want to highlight that for people. That if you look at the Rotterdam study, which I talk about in the book, it's an epidemiology study that looked at over four thousand people in Denmark, and uh, 
incidence of cardiovascular disease was significantly associated in an inverse fashion, meaning that the more vitamin K2 people ate, the less cardiovascular disease they had. It was a very clear study and the less aortic calcification they had. Now, interestingly, in the, in the Rotterdam study and in many other studies with vitamin K, intake of vitamin K1 is not associated with any improvement in outcomes. So I have a real concern that we actually don't convert vitamin K1 to K2 very well. It may oh, depend on our microbiome and it, it may depend on our liver. On your microbiome, but yeah, it I'm, depends on I'm, your liver health. I really do not recommend that people rely on vitamin K1 for vitamin K2 at all. I think that's, a, that's not a good strategy. And I, would, I wonder if there, I think there are much better ways to get vitamin K2. And if we're worried about vitamin A, that's fine. I've recommended people between eight and 16 ounces of liver, so a little more than what you recommend. But, um, but there's, you know, uh, we know that animal fat has vitamin K2. Uh, we know that kidney Paul, has I, vitamin I, K2. I, I'm not disagreeing with you, things, yeah. but what, what I'm trying to tell you is that in my own personal experience, the greens uh, uh, for the first four years, if my greens intake dropped, I felt terrible. Interesting. So within 24 hours, I could begin to not feel well. Within 36 hours, I was clearly not well. So whatever is going on, we don't know what it is. I'm theorizing it was partly the, the vitamin K2. But for me, the greens were clearly a huge part of my recovery. Interesting. Um, I, I agree the way we have changed uh, farming practices so that our animals are no longer eating green grass. And so they are vitamin K uh, uh, depend, uh, low. Their meat would be low. So if you're getting your organ meats from uh, grain-fed animals that are housed inside, likely their vitamin K2 uh, content of those animal products will be low. Whether or not we, we can efficiently make K2 from greens, we don't know. And we don't really know what was the healing part of those greens in my diet. But for the first four years of my recovery, if I didn't have that enormous intake of greens, I was ill. Interesting. Interesting. Now, yeah, now, now, you know, so I'm 12 years into my recovery. Um, I can travel. I, uh, I don't travel with those high intake of greens anymore. I travel with cabbage um, and, instead of greens. Uh, and also, uh, you'll be pleased to know this, I, I travel with a bottle of um, organ meat capsules so I can keep <laughs> up my organ meat. Uh, so I'm, I'm having my uh, cabbage and my organ meat capsules and now traveling uh, is very easy and comfortable. That's great. And that, those are something that I think are a great adjunct for people, the desiccated organs that can make traveling easier. But it's so interesting to look at where the nutrients are in animals. Listeners of this podcast will know that I'm a great advocate for nose to tail. And also that I strongly advocate and ask people to think about the quality of their food. I love that you highlighted this. And it sounded like when you had your improvement, you improved your food quality, specifically the quality of your animal mm -hmm. foods. They went to more organic. You started eating more yes. of the shellfish or, you know, higher quality. And I think that, you know, I'm such an advocate for farms like Belcampo and White Oak Pastures. And I do think that, that if we are eating meat or when we are eating meat, which we both agree is a vital part of the human diet, it's, it makes so much sense to eat it from the best animals on the planet, both from an environmental perspective and from a nutritional perspective, because if those cows are eating better food, 
they're just so, so much more likely to be nutrient rich for us. But I do think there, there may be something to vitamin K here. And I, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I, yeah. I, I wonder if it was just that you needed more vitamin K. And I just wanted to highlight that, that the vitamin it, K2 in animal foods is also quite robust. Only if it's a grass-fed animal. Right, exactly, from the best only sourced animals. Only if it's a grass-fed animal uh, or uh, wild game or wild fish, if it's conventionally grown, that, I think that meat is a very different profile. I do think that meat is inflammatory as well. I think it could mm -hmm. be inflammatory, and I wonder about that. I've talked about that on a few podcasts in the past. My concerns that there could be bioaccumulation of atrazine, pesticides sprayed on the grains that are fed Round to that up. meat. Mm -hmm. Roundup. You know, Exactly. And, and uh, right now, uh, even the hay is being um, uh, sprayed with Roundup. So mm. it's all to uh, facilitate drying it more rapidly. So the amount of Roundup that's uh, going into our uh, animals uh, that are grown conventionally uh, is really quite enormous. And so their microbiome uh, has changed. Right. Uh, and, and truly, uh, their... Uh, nutritional quality of their meat, uh, of all of the animal products from those animals, is radically different than the nutritional quality of uh, a grass-fed, grass-finished animal. I think so. And oh, I don't know that we'll go down this rabbit hole on this podcast, but people may have heard me talk about the just kind of the life cycle and the ethics of eating different types of animals. And people who listen will certainly know that I'm a great champion for regenerative agriculture and the organic, yeah. the percentage of organic matter in the soil. I think that is the single greatest metric that will determine the persistence of homo sapiens on this planet. And regenerative agriculture is the clear way, which means rotational grazing, grass feeding, grass finishing in the yeah. real way that feeds the animals better that will create health and disease. And I think that in the carnivore community, yeah. I fear this is being overlooked and probably yeah, also within yeah, Paleolithic yeah. or other ancestral yeah. communities that people are always worried about money and where they're going to mm -hmm. spend their money. And I, I fear that people may not be thinking about the quality of their meat as much as they need to. I think it could be a correct. completely different food. Correct, correct. Uh, having said all that, w which I agree, I also acknowledge that in my lifestyle clinic, I, my patients were typically uh, disabled, uh, living on fixed income, living on food stamps. And so when they came to see us, uh, we helped them figure out how to begin their diet and lifestyle journey within their financial constraints. Mm. Uh, and so, so that, that would mean that people are starting out um, shopping in small town, Iowa, at the small rural uh, grocery store. Uh, where there is no organic food, uh, and they might be getting frozen vegetables, canned vegetables, and meats. I'm getting them off uh, sugar and processed food, so that's uh, a big step in the right direction. Uh, and then I'd have some folks who were committed to the vegetarian diet for the religious reasons, or money was so tight that we were working with them on uh, beans and rice, but we were using pressure cookers uh, to make them uh, the, le the lectins less of a problem for them. Right, uh, And so even though these folks were not doing the uh, organic foods, regenerative foods that you and I would recommend, I was still achieving remarkable health transformations. Now, the other thing that you know, we would work with these folks over six months. So in the beginning, they're uh, doing their uh, frozen vegetables, canned vegetables, and meats that they can afford. We're teaching them how to cook. Uh, and by the end of six months, uh, Paul, very commonly, uh, they're coming back and telling us that they've been figuring out how to get 
you know, more venison in their diet. Mm, I love it. How to get uh, or the organic vegetables by going to the farmer's market and saying at the end of the uh, market here, what would you give me? What could I pay for the things that didn't sell? So they've gone from their conventional foods to organic foods, and they're still living on food stamps. And they've learned how to prioritize. So it, it, it is a journey. Uh, I, I, I want to acknowledge that I have an ideal recommendation where I want people uh, to be ultimately with their food, but I'm going to take them from where they're at uh, and work with them incrementally to steadily improve the quality of their diet, to improve their daily activities and their stress reduction. I, I, I think that's amazing. I totally agree with that. So what does your diet look like right now? Well, right now, so I'm in my uh, uh, seven-day uh, water fast. Okay. So I, I have tea uh, in my cup, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I do this uh, one week out of every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Uh, wow, that's so a lot of fasting. One week a month, a lot of fast- your, your water one fasting. Week a month. And I, I'll tell you by you know, day six or seven, you're, you're pretty hungry. Actually, I, I'm quite hungry. Uh, and my, the intensity of my workouts are less. Right. Uh, by, by, that, by that far. Uh, then I go to time-restricted feeding, and I'm having, uh, again, tea in the morning, water in the morning, and then an evening meal uh, that will be uh, some, whatever the protein is, uh, uh, so a grass-fed meat. Uh, once a week, we have liver, um, and then I will make liver pate that I will have uh, after uh, the big uh, uh, liver and onions meals. Uh, and if you follow me on Instagram, you can see uh, uh, my typical meals. I will have uh, my meat uh, and uh, vegetables. I'd say it's still many more vegetables uh, than you're having. Uh, but well, I again, don't have any, so yeah. Yeah, so many more. Any. <laughs> In, Infinitely uh, more. Correct, correct. And uh, again, everything's completely uh, organic mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the meat's all regenerative. And I'm very attentive to that uh, I'm going to have liver uh, uh, once a week, and then we'll have liver pate uh, for the next couple of meals uh, after that day of liver. So I'm probably having liver. Um, well, we certainly have a lot of uh, liver and organ meat. That's great. What other organs yeah. do you eat? Uh, heart. Uh, love we it. love heart. Uh, kidney is quite good. Um, uh, tongue uh, is mm-hmm. very good. Uh, and then, of course, uh, bone broths, mm-hmm. uh, bone marrow, uh, oysters, mussels, uh, clams. I love it. And I'll just highlight for the listener that heart is a pretty good source of riboflavin. Kidneys are a good source of riboflavin. Kidneys are much lower in vitamin A than the liver. So some mixing of kidney and liver in the diet probably makes a lot of sense. Um, you can get lots of nutrients. Kidneys, uh, you know, kidneys, in my opinion, are kind of like liver. They're pretty darn nutritious and they don't have quite as much vitamin A if we're thinking in, in those yeah. terms. Do you have any no. concerns? Go ahead. Um, I've got some Brazilian recipes for lungs, but I've not been able to find any. <laughs> uh, the, the other th- uh, thing that we have a lot of is uh, um, uh, chicken feet. So uh-huh. I will uh, uh, throw in chicken feet uh, uh, into our soups and stews. Uh, so... That's a, a very common meal is uh, stew meat uh, with a variety of bones, uh, mm-hmm. mushrooms and onions and all mm-hmm. of that. 
Mushrooms are a whole fun, complex topic that I have to do a whole other podcast on. With kale, do you have any concerns about thallium and kale? I actually had a, uh, someone that I met who had thallium toxicity from overeating kale. Yeah, that is an uh, interesting concern. I uh, have not measured my thallium, so I can't comment on that. Hmm. What about, um, I think that the leafy greens are somewhere where um, we, we may disagree. With things like kale, I also worry about isothiocyanates and oxalates. Kale is mm-hmm. not the highest in oxalates. Rhubarb would be much higher, sweet potatoes. Yeah, spinach spinach, um, spinach higher, yeah. is the worst one for oxalates. Yeah. But yeah. With, with leafy, well, let's just talk about oxalates. Do you eat spinach? Do you have concerns about oxalates uh, with leafy greens? Uh, uh, I'd say for the vast majority, oxalates will not be a problem. Uh, if you have autism spectrum disorder, uh, more likely to be a problem. Mm. Uh, if you have uh, kidney stones, more likely to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, this debate about plants. So uh, I'll, I'll give you my ancestral health perspective, and we can have a lovely debate here. Sure. Uh, so Brunhilde uh, uh, is going to come out, the ancestral Germanic uh, warrior princess kind of okay. person from Northern Europe. Okay. So we'll go back a million years. I'm out there sort of hanging out with the Neanderthals. Uh, and what are we eating? We're eating plants uh, during the summer along with our meat uh, during, uh, in a variety of plants. During the winter, uh, when the hunt is good, we're, ha- we're strictly carnivores. If the hunt's not good, now we're in ketosis, burning our fat and surviving. When summer comes along, we're still eating our meat. And uh, Brunhilde's out there gathering some plants that mix in with the bee. And for our, our, the societies that are, that I, at least that I can find, that are carnivores eating meat alone with no plants or minimal plants, the tr- traditional societies that I'm aware of were eating their meat mostly raw and fermented. And certainly the meat was a very different product than what I see uh, in the grocery store here. Mm-hmm. So m- my concerns are vitamin C. If you're, if you're uh, in that, we don't have that seasonal variation. Uh, that I'm much more comfortable if somebody is going to be a carnivore diet that they uh, fluctuate between carnivore and fasting. So we have that variation. And I'd rather that they have some seasonal introduction of some plant material. Uh, to emulate what our uh, what I think Brunhilde was doing, and I could be wrong, but you know even my Arctic friends, the Inuit, would have had plant materials uh, seasonally during the summer in very little plant material uh, during the winter. So my preference, where where I have the most comfort, is when I can find a ancestral eating pattern uh, to emulate. And I think that's so totally. What, yeah. What what have you found? Have you found any additional info? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what the whole book is about, I guess. So. Well, I'm going to look forward to reading that. Yeah, yeah. Getting, I'm sending you a your, copy. Getting sending, your perspective. Sending you a copy. Absolutely. So there's a lot of pieces there that I can offer, you know, sort of my perspective on. Uh, a million years ago, um, we we weren't really even homo sapiens. We were probably homo erectus and homo habilis. Yes. Um, from what I've read, it appears that Neanderthals uh, broke off from Homo habilis maybe 600,000 years ago, et cetera. Um, so somewhere in that range, I think, um, I'm not sure that we were in Northern Africa a million years ago or where we were, but um, I think there's this interesting question of 
how much did plants become survival food versus serving a unique indispensable role in the human diet? And uh, ultimately, I don't think we'll ever be able to construct or reconstruct the diet of our ancestors um, with incredible accuracy. But there are a few studies that I talk about in the book looking at stable isotopes from Neanderthals and Homo sapiens 40 to 50,000 years ago, so much more recently, and further back looking at uh, stable isotope levels in the teeth of Homo habilis uh, paranthropus, which is a species that appears to have gone extinct, and Australopithecus, which preceded all of this probably three to four million years ago. And looking at the tooth stable isotope study, they can compare, and again, this is the best we can reconstruct it, they can compare strontium and calcium and barium ratios. And um, what appears to have happened, or at least the best reconstruction we have, is that we went from a species like Australopithecus that was eating a mix of plants and animals to uh, perhaps a diversion or a separation into Paranthropus, which ate more plants, and Homo habilis, which ate more animals. And Paranthropus went extinct. And then it appears looking at teeth, which again is an imperfect measure, that Homo habilis was eating a lot of animals. Now, that's not to say that Homo habilis wasn't eating any plants, mm-hmm. but I think that um, the, the premise or the hypothesis that I advance in the book is what if plants have just traditionally evolutionarily been fallback foods, survival foods? Yeah. And, and the corollary question with that is, do plants provide any nutrients for humans that we cannot obtain from animals? And I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit, but that's the question. You know, if we, if we were always able to have successful hunts, and we can also think about this in terms of megafauna, and we know that in the last 40 to 50 50,000 years, megafauna have gone extinct on all, on all continents. So for the majority of our evolution, we may have been able to hunt much bigger, much fattier animals that were much more calorically, retur- they had a much better caloric return on our energy investment to hunt them rather than smaller animals like deer, etc. If we could get those animals, do plants serve a vital role in the human diet or not? Because the the reason the only reason we would ask this question is do plants have toxins and I think that we all agree that oh, they yeah. have some toxins they're, they're, they all have a mix they of all, toxins yeah they all have some toxins and then, then we get into these interesting conversations about how much humans can detoxify them is there some genetic variation if plants appeared to be completely benign then you know including them in the diet wouldn't really be a conversation but one of the interesting suggestions of a carnivore diet is that when people when some people eliminate some plants or all plants autoimmune issues appear to get to get better. And so do plants serve a unique, indispensable role in the human diet? How much a part of our diet were, there, were they evolutionarily? Was that a specific role or was it as a fallback food? Um, and so that's kind of how I frame it. And then if we look at the studies of uh, Neanderthals and uh, contemporary humans 40 to 50,000 years ago, we see the same sort of pattern looking at um, D15 nitrogen levels or delta 15 nitrogen levels in the bones, suggesting that those humans and Neanderthals were eating a whole heck of a lot of animals, like even more than they were eating larger animals and they, they had higher levels of delta 15 nitrogen than known carnivores like hyenas. And so it's just an interesting question, like, do we need plants? And then I'll, I'll talk about the vitamin C because that I think is a good segue. So when we're thinking about this, if we look at animal foods, and this is something that's so fascinating, I'd love to get your take on this. When we are eating animals nose to tail, it really appears that humans can get every single nutrient, every single vitamin mineral that we need to thrive. And the, the common question is, what about vitamin C? And mm-hmm. the interesting response is that there is vitamin C in animal foods. As you suggest, if the animal foods are fresh, if there's- you eat them raw, yes. Or, or even just not overcooked, 
Um, yep, eat them raw. Yeah, there's eat there's, them raw. <laughs> well, I do eat raw liver. Anyone that listens yeah. to me will know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So there's plenty of there. There is vitamin C in animal foods, and then there's interesting conversations that I've had with Chris Master John and James Nicol Antonio is. What is ideal? There, there certainly is good evidence that there's enough vitamin C in animal foods to prevent scurvy. There's studies from conscientious well, objectors from 1940 that say 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day is enough to prevent scurvy. But then we move further and we say, what is ideal for vitamin C in the human body? And I think that's where we start to wonder. There are mm -hmm. a couple of studies I've talked about where um, the fruit and vegetable intake was increased in someone's diet. And their vitamin C intake went from 70, 70 to 270 milligrams a day. And despite increased blood levels of vitamin C, there was no change in antioxidant parameters, DNA damage, et cetera. So, uh, and then if you look at interventional studies with vitamin C, they, they generally fail to show improvements in endpoints of cardiovascular disease, common cold, cancers, et cetera. So I think it's an interesting question. What is the ideal amount of vitamin C for humans? We know we need it, but I'm not convinced that we need mega doses or doses that are not easily obtainable from reasonably fresh, not overcooked animal foods. Now, uh, if you look at some uh, historical data, and you probably have done this, uh, the Arctic uh, expeditions uh, had a very high mortality rate. However, uh, when finally uh, the first uh, North, uh, northern explorer who made it to the North Pole uh, instead of eating the European rations, just started eating the way the Inuit guides ate yeah. uh, and were eating raw meat uh, and the raw rations from the Inuit, they survived and actually put on weight. Uh, and I believe he came back and continued with his raw meat diet, uh, or at least some of the uh, travelers did. And I, I think that's, uh, to me, a compelling uh, way that that one, at least when, when I'm talking to people who are interested in the carnivore diet uh, is I let them know that the evidence that I'm aware of uh, is that following the traditional patterns of the Inuit, uh, people did very, very well uh, with these raw meat foods and fermented foods, uh, but they still had some seasonal uh, exposure uh, to plants. Uh, so, and what we do know historically is that we can survive on a meat-only diet. Uh, we can survive. Uh, it'd be difficult. It's going to be difficult to survive only on plants. Uh, it's going to be difficult to survive only on uh, in a ketogenic diet. But apparently, we we can uh, digest these foods, and the fact that we're able to digest these foods have added to our um, apparently our survival resilience, what is the correct role in the ratio for um, what these plants are it is probably a fairly broad uh, spectrum of what we can tolerate and what's optimal. Uh, when we try to design what's optimal, an another factor for us to consider is uh, the blue zone areas where you have societies that live uh, in high proportions to over 100 that have uh, diets that may include foods that I don't care for, that I certainly am not going to recommend, dairy, gluten, uh, that they still thrive uh, and survive uh, and, and flourish quite well. So I, while I'm, I, which keeps me sort of uh, humble as I go about this uh, discovery that, I, that I'm on, which is what is the most optimal diet? 
what is that spectrum and how do I help people continue to move towards improving the quality of what they're doing closer to a blue zone diet, closer to my diet, or perhaps closer to a carnivore diet that's respectful of their um, current development and their spiritual beliefs and their uh, economic reality and the reality of their family. Yeah. So I have a whole section in the, in the book, uh, in my book, the carnivore code, where I talk about the blue zones Oh, and great! I've, I've debated Stephen Gundry about this and I would love to debate Dan Buettner. Um, the blue zones, in my opinion, are, are nothing less than a fallacy. Um, the blue zones are, a, are, are a basically Ansel Keys, um, cherry picking. Um, mm-hmm. and, and basically what Dan Buettner and his colleagues did was choose, uh, five regions of the world, the Ikaria region of Costa, of the Ikaria region of Greece, Sardinia, the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, Loma Linda, California, and Okinawa. And they tried to extrapolate what their diet was and say, and, and they also looked at lifestyle and they tried to say, hey, these places have exceptional longevity. The problem with any of these type of constructs and is that they, they're cherry picked, right? There are many regions of the world Hong Kong, Iceland, where there is also a higher than average proportion of centenarians and super centenarians who eat diets that are nothing like the blue zones, quote unquote, diets. Furthermore, and I talk about this in detail in the book, if you look at the diets of any one of those places, except Loma Linda, they actually eat a pretty substantial amount of meat. So this is like, you know, this is pretty much exactly like Ansel Keys going around the world with his seven countries study during Lent when they weren't eating meat and saying these places don't eat meat and, and then saying, and these places fit the, the, the model that meat or saturated fat increases cholesterol and that, that leads to heart disease. Mm-hmm. And so I think that Dan Buettner has done us a real disservice here. If you look at Okinawa specifically, Okinawa is not Buddhist. And um, so there has been no taboo on meat. And the Okinawans eat more meat than the general Japanese population. They love pork and they eat it, you know, with, with, you know, fervor. Sardinia, they have a whole dish that's called sarda pig, which is a pastured pig. And if you look at the feast, people can just look up Sardinian meat or sarda pig, S-A-R-D-A. Feasts of meat in Sardinia are very common. In Nicoya region of Costa Rica, it's only a longevity region for the men. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, if men and women are eating the same thing, why would that happen? But in the the Nicoya region of Costa Rica, they are known to eat more meat and to cook more of their meat and and foods and animal fat than the general Costa Rican population who they outlive. Uh, If we look at Icaria and Greece, it's the exact same story. They they treasure meat. None of these places are plant-based. And then the last one is Loma Linda. Well, I talk about this specifically in the book and I've mentioned it on, on my Instagram as well. Loma Linda is a place where there are Seventh-day Adventists, and the Seventh-day Adventist culture is to discourage people from eating meat. About half the people in Loma Linda are lacto-ovo-vegetarians, and a smaller proportion are vegans. And people point to Loma Linda, and this actually happened on the recent episode of The Doctors that I was on. I want to talk about that with you as well before we wrap up. You know, one of the, they, they didn't put this in the clip because this made them look bad, but one of the doctors said, what about Loma Linda? What about the Blue Zones? And I said, you know what? The people in Loma Linda live an average of seven years longer than those in California. The Loma Linda is in Southern California. But if you look at Mormons living in California, they also live seven years longer than the average Californian. And Mormons don't shun meat. They eat steak, you know, in the same way. 
What do both of those people do? They don't drink, they don't smoke, and they focus on family. And so when people hold up Loma Linda as a blue zone, I I bristle and I think that's inaccurate. You can't say that with the epidemiology. It's certainly true. Even... um the, the complexity of the of what Butner advocates in his blue zone is it's more than the diet. There is the social construct totally uh, and uh, uh, the physical activity, uh, and so uh, diet and lifestyle is a very complex uh, conversation. I think where we have tremendous agreement is that our current uh, epidemic of autoimmune issues and poor health. It's because we have this profound mismatch between our uh, environment that we have created uh, culturally and through our, all of our innovations that uh, is more and more and more comfortable, uh, and the food is more and more processed and designed away from real food, the worse our health becomes. And that meat is certainly a critical part of a healthy diet that plant material has some role, we don't know uh, what uh, role for that, that uh, at least in my case, uh, plants uh, and meat were a critical part of my recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if I reduce the plant intake early in my recovery, my health sharply declined. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and there may well be a genetic variation that determines what tolerance we have and which of these diets is most beneficial. Yeah. And I definitely clearly, clearly the, the conventional diet and lifestyle, there's a profound mismatch that is exploding our health crisis that not, none of the politicians are discussing. So whether they're a Republican or democratic, they're not discussing that the root cause of our health problem is this mismatch. And it doesn't matter how much money we spend in healthcare we won't become healthy if we never address this core mismatch. I totally agree. Well said. And the other problem, in my opinion, is that Western medicine doesn't realize this either, that we're not, that we're not taught this in medical schools. Imagine if in medical school we were taught, here are all the drugs that you're going to see used, but you know what? The biggest lever is food. So figure out what food works best for your patients. And here are some of the diets that work for people. You know, here's the, here's the Walls diet. Here's this diet. Here's paleo diet. Here's a carnivore diet. These yes, are the diets absolutely. that work. And, 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 and this is the research on these diets. And imagine if that were taught in medical school. Uh, and, that would be groundbreaking. If we taught people to ask, do you cook meals at home using ingredients as opposed to boxes and processed absolutely. foods? Yeah. And imagine if you start having a cooking class in that you help sponsored in your local religious communities or your local YMCA or the public school or the library. This is the profound impact that could radically improve the health of your tribe, your community. Uh, and, and that's what we did in our lifestyle clinic at the VA. Oh yeah. You we guys did amazing classes. things. We yeah. had cooking classes. We had meditation classes. We had movement classes and I got to, you know, every three months report to my hospital director and the chief of staff what we were doing. And because the VA had an electronic medical record, we could get these reports that would show the uh, improvements in blood pressure in A1C, in the reduction in medication use, the reduction in uh, hospitalization. It was stunning. Yeah. I mean, 
And, and it was, there was no fancy testing. There was no fancy supplements. All I had was inspiration, uh, teaching people the possibility of hope, asking if they knew how to cook, having them come to cooking classes, having them come to our other skills classes. And you know, my patients were people living on food stamps. So when people say, only, only the wealthy folks can do this. My folks were not wealthy. Like, I love it. Absolutely. And I love that you use, you use the word radical. That's like my favorite word. Yes, this say. radical notion that teaching your patients to cook <laughs> is the most fundamental uh, skill that you can give people. And teaching them to cook with ingredients, you know, teaching them, you know, organic liver is very cheap. That's easy to, to find. In Iowa, many, many communities have uh, venison because they have mm -hmm. controlled kills to control the deer population. Perfect. So venison's in the, in the meat locker, free for anyone who wants it. Wow. Uh, and so... It is accessible. You know, in Iowa, um, it, it's easy. There's uh, plenty of deer, plenty of hunters who are shooting deer and are willing to share uh, 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 in that meat. So it, this can be much more affordable than people realize. You know, and, and teaching people to get a pressure cooker and to get the inexpensive uh, stew cuts of meat, uh, uh, the, bone, uh, the bones, and to make their soups and stews very inexpensive, it makes this so much more affordable. Because I, I certainly, in my population, money was tough, and I had to be very sensitive to that. Yeah. And so just to wrap up the Blue Zones conversation for people, and then we'll move on to one more uh, question I have for you, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, it seems that uh, I'm not debating that there are regions of the world where people live longer. I think that what I suspect is that it's more to do with the community and the lifestyle mm -hmm. than yes, individual yes. dietary variations because we see people eating a variety of foods. Hong yeah. Kong, for instance, you know, in Hong Kong, the life expectancy is 85 years and they are the third largest uh, consumer of beef in the world. They eat 1.5 pounds of meat a day. So for people to suggest that um, the absence of meat is associated with longevity doesn't hold up in my opinion. And then I'll just add the one more thing about Loma Linda I've talked about this before, is that when we look at sperm quality of males in Loma Linda, it's abysmal. Uh, it's, oh. they're hi, they're hyper, they're hy they have hypermotility, hypomotility, so slow motility, and the sperm counts are lower. And the sperm counts of vegetarians are worse than omnivores, and the sperm counts of vegans in Loma Linda are worse than vegetarians. And so it's a real, in my yeah. opinion, indictment um, into the potential problems with that sort of thing. And there's other studies that have been done um, actually at Harvard. I talk about both of these in my book that correlated more fruits and vegetables in the diet with worse sperm quality. And this in, in, it's unclear whether this has to do with problems, uh, whether in Loma Linda, I suspect it's due to nutrient inadequacy in those peoples. In the Harvard study, they hypothesize it's due to pesticides or residues on the vegetables and that eating more traditional vegetables is lowering, but it, it's clear. There's a clear association in both of those studies between more fruits and vegetables and lower sperm quality. So pretty striking. Well, um, globally, we can debate uh, the fact that sperm counts have been falling. That's uh, scary. Uh, and that menarche is uh, younger and younger uh, for women uh, and that fertility rates are falling uh, globally as well. Um, so I, I think that's a separate debate that would be very interesting for us uh, to look at. Uh, what are the public health implications? 
and the economic implications of the fact that fertility rates are uh, plummeting. I, I'll also make the pitch that we have many, many uh, folks who've had infertility, either from the male line or the female line, who, when they've embraced uh, my program, are uh, now successfully parenting and having children, uh, you know, and getting pregnant. Uh, and so, absolutely, diet quality, lifestyle has a huge, huge impact on um, whether or not you're going to have a pregnancy. And if you do get pregnant, be able to carry that pregnancy to, to term and have a full-term uh, uh, baby come out as opposed to a premature infant. Yeah, I love These that. These are huge, huge public health issues. Uh, and again, a tremendous economic burden uh, where the health uh, policy uh, makers uh, don't understand the root cause of these problems are our, our, our diet uh, and lifestyle. Yeah, I love it. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that um, when we see insulin resistance improve, we see fertility improve. And when we take out processed foods, we see fertility improve and see that in the carnivore community as well. And it's probably one of the coolest things because um, the people who are making those determined lifestyle choices, those intentional lifestyle choices are, are going to raise healthy children. And those children are going to be in families that where they're going to get a lot of support. So it's, it's, Correct. It's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I just want to make sure that we covered this because I know my listeners are going to be super interested. Any other concerns that you have about a carnivore diet that I could speak to or that we could talk about and then we can wrap it up? Thanks so much. Well, uh, so vitamin C. Uh-huh. So we, talked uh, and, that one. Uh, we talked about that. Vitamin A, we've talked about that. Uh, and then the, the other thing that, that I raise is the, the information that I can find is that the carnivore diet is not the meat only intake is not year round indefinitely. The societies that I can find, and I look forward to your book, so I will perhaps find more societies, is that the meat or animal product only is for a large part of the year, and then part of the year there's introduction of plant materials. Sure. Yeah, and anthropologically, I think we see that pattern um, frequently. Do you have any thoughts about what those plant materials, do you think those plant materials may have a unique role or what are your thoughts about not having that seasonal variation? How could that be um, problematic? So I think it it may have to do with my uh, thinking on uh, the benefits of ketosis. I mean, Uh I love ketosis. There are so many reasons to think that ketosis is just tremendously good for you. Um, But it turns out that there's a cost with ketosis uh, that if I'm in ketosis, I'm getting a lot of signals uh, to put myself uh, in a little hibernation state. Mm-hmm. Thyroid goes down, sex hormones go down, fertility declines. And over time, my brain's going to uh, suffer from the lower uh, thyroid levels and the lower hormone levels. So I'm more inclined to think uh, in terms of hormesis now and prefer that my ketosis be intermittent. Uh, and I prefer that my patient's ketosis is intermittent. Therefore, again, in my simplistic way of thinking about things, what Brunhilde uh, might have been doing uh, you know, thousands of generations ago, that was there some important um, advantage, reproductive advantage that she got because she had plants intermittently? I don't know. As a source of carbohydrates? As a source of, I don't know. Right. That it, it was part of her diet. And she had reproductive success. 
Uh, and in nature, it seems to me that the random mutations that occur that take advantage of the, the environment that you live in, that when those random mutations are helpful, you have reproductive success. And so you keep getting more finely tuned to the environment that, you, that you're living in through mm-hmm. those random mutations. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Brunhilde would have, may have had plenty of um, big animals to chew on much of the time, sometime was chewing on plants that she got uh, as part of her uh, gathering, sometimes chewing on small animals, salamanders, snakes, whatever, eggs seasonally, that she developed random mutations that that made those advantageous. So, and I have no idea what, what those would be, and I don't know that my sci- other PhD colleagues would know necessarily what those uh, ad- advantages would be. But it's my expectation that there are random mutations that occurred in Brunhilde that I probably have. That would mean that, yes, I could probably do better, perhaps I could do better on a, uh, uh, with more meat, less plants, I, I'm not convinced yet that long-term for the rest of my life, the absence of plants would be an advantage. I might be able to tolerate it and do fine, uh, but I think the Brunhildas probably had plants at least seasonally. Sometimes, yeah. It's interesting. So I did a whole conversation about this with Chris Masterjohn that I would refer people to regarding ketosis. That was the second um, friendly debate I did with Chris Masterjohn. I think that the, the first part of this equation, as I see it, is that there's clear benefits to being in ketosis from time to time. I think we agree on that. Mm-hmm. I did a whole podcast with James Clement um, about mTOR and IGF-1, and I think that we definitely need periods of, um, of fasting and or time-restricted feeding and or low-carbohydrate eating. We need ketosis. Yeah, we need ketosis. And we need ketosis. It's really you know what's quite interesting is that many people can eat carbohydrates and still have ketosis at certain times of the day. You know, um, you, you know there's, if we're not eating excessive carbohydrates all the time, if we're not eating, if we're doing any sort of time-restricted eating, we are certainly going to have ketones in our body from time to time. And I talked about this with James Clement, that if we wake up in the morning and we have fasting levels of ketones that are positive, and I don't think we really know whether the cutoff is 0.5 millimolar or 0.2 millimolar or whatever, there are prob- there's probably autophagy happening in our liver and throughout our body at some level and IGF-1 levels are low. And what's interesting for me, and I talk about this with Chris Masterjohn, is that a carnivore diet is quite fascinating because you can still remain, well, there there are a couple of nuances here. On a carnivore diet that provides adequate amounts of protein, which I would think of as one gram of protein per pound of body weight, we are not necessarily always in ketosis. We know that we can do gluconeogenesis. We know that when we give our body enough protein, we can move out of ketogenic physiology. So that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. that even without formal carbohydrates, we can move out of ketosis if we give ourselves Mm -hmm. enough protein. So that's one permutation of a carnivore diet. The other notion that I think is fascinating is that we can get carbohydrates without eating plant matter, honey, for people that tolerate dairy, liver actually has some carbohydrates because it has glycogen. Um, so that's fascinating. And then I think you're absolutely right. I think we need to watch these things and watch our hormones. And if, if they start to tank or we start to feel badly, I, I have no problem with the, the reintroduction of carbohydrates um, in a pulsatile fashion or, uh, or for longer amounts of time with some intermittent ketosis 
if we consider those carbohydrates on a spectrum of plant toxicity, you know, and I talk about this in the book, which carb, if we're going to eat carbohydrates, which carbohydrates are least toxic for humans, right? I would think of um, some carbohydrates as potentially more triggering to the immune system. So it's quite a fascinating conversation. I think we need to signal to our body, both feast and famine. And I talked about this with Chris Master, John, if we're getting enough protein and enough calories, can that provide a a fed state signal to humans in the absence of carbohydrates. It's an interesting conversation. Um, you know, I, I certainly agree. Uh, we will do best if we experience that hermetic offense, uh, effect of fed uh, and not fed so that we're, we have that mild to moderate stress yeah. and then have a feeding recovery period. Uh, and that's um, certainly what the, the dietary pattern that I'm choosing. And so far it's working out very well. No, it's great. It's amazing. I think that we're on the same page there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to try and get some uh, clinical studies to see uh, what the effect of the carnivore diet would be prospectively. Yeah. You know, there's, um, there's one that I've mentioned in the past. There was a, a very close um, follow of two people that came back from Alaska, specifically Willemar Stephenson and Anderson in 1930 that was done at Bellevue Hospital. Sometimes people poo-poo that study saying it was 1930, but they looked at kidney function. They looked at weight. They look, you know, so that we actually- Still be very useful, yeah. Yeah, we do. We, we do have some interesting data. And there's, I talked about a study a few weeks ago with Chris, Matt, Chris uh, Kresser that there was actually a week-long study done at Harvard looking at the carnivore diet and the microbiome. So what we're hoping, I think that's the next, the next project is once I get the book out, well, that, so that we're going to do some clinical studies. So if you can if you can find some funding, uh, we'll be happy to run them for you. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it gets funny. The, you know, the challenge is that uh, the, these are uh, doing it, clinical trials are expensive, uh, but you know certainly what I found is when I put that out there, I want to run these trials. We have been successful at finding donors who are interested in supporting a study. So, uh, what would be most ideal uh, would be a single arm feasibility study uh, for safety. Uh, in a target population to see what the effect is. And since my target population is MS, um, we should talk if you can find some uh, funding for us. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to do a little kind of a little study for you to answer some of these questions. I think it's amazing. People are getting excited listening to this right now. I think we yeah, could even crowdsource yeah. it. Yeah, offline, we'll talk about how much money we might need to fund it. But you guys listening to this podcast, we're going to get a crowdfunding. We're going to get a GoFundMe. We're going to fund yeah, this let's, study. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, yeah. I, th- I think it'd be really very interesting. Um, we have uh, a lot of experience doing dietary intervention studies. Uh, and so if we put out you know, a small study of 20 folks, uh, we could have some uh, parameters uh, that we could follow uh, and see if it's sustainable, what the effect is on the diet. Uh, and depending on, on the money that we can uh, uh, collect, you know, th- that would depend on how many things I can measure and assess and, you know, uh, how long we could uh, run this. It could um, be, yeah, let's do it. That, um, well, let's talk uh, off uh, offline and uh, figure out how to uh, help uh, raise the money to get a little pilot going. You guys heard it here first. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've got the second edition of the Walls yes. Protocol. You've got the second edition of the book coming out March 17th. Yes. Where can people find more of your work and how do they get get so, all of your stuff? Yeah, go to terrywalls.com, T-E-R-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S.com. If you do add forward slash research papers, then you get access to all of our research papers, uh, including the video 
of these remarkable changes in gait that we're able to achieve. Um, so that would be fabulous. Uh, and then you can learn more about our uh, in-person event and certification programs at terrywalls.com. Awesome. And I hope that you and I can share a steak uh, soon. Oh, my God. Why steak? Come on. What's wrong with liver, man? I'll eat some liver with you anytime. <laughs> yeah, lamb right. liver is perfect. That's, that's, perfect. that's the perfect meal. That's so brand. That's so on brand for me. So the last question I always ask my podcast guests is, and I'm super excited for your answer on this, is what is the most radical thing that you have done recently? And this is, you know, this is like awesome radical. It's like 80s radical. Well, um, you know, I, I, I love doing electrical stimulation of muscles to uh, uh, get a more intense workout. Uh, and so I've added now a, uh, a spa foot bath. So I, I put the electrodes in the water, put my feet in the water, more electrodes on my belly, dial up the current. So my spouse is like, oh, my God, are you, I, is this okay? I keep dialing up the current. Uh, and it is a, an amazing uh, uh, feeling this uh, electrified body. So uh, I've added that to my uh, daily routine now, this, uh, electrified body. That's amazing. <laughs> so when we eat liver, you have to show me how you do that, and I want to do that too. Yes, it'd be a lovely dinner. <laughs> that would be amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Much love to you. All right. All right, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, cavemen and cave women. That was a fun one with Terry Walls. It was super interesting to hear about her story for me and to try and dig into what was the difference for her. I kind of want to have her back on and dig more into this. What I took away from this was her perspective that she does feel that a low-fat vegetarian diet might have prompted her autoimmune disease. And what aspect of that might have been most triggering to her is interesting. I think that um, most people will be aware that plants can trigger the immune system. Now, which plants are triggering the immune system and which people is fascinating. And um, it may have also been nutrient deficiency in her case with a low-fat vegetarian diet being probably pretty nutrient deficient and certainly vitamin K deficient. Vitamin K came up a lot in this podcast and we talked a lot about how problematic it could be to not get animal sources of vitamin K. I do think that many people are not going to be able to convert K1 from leafy greens into K2. As I talked about in the podcast, the Rotterdam study suggests that strongly. And I think we should be getting vitamin K from animals. I talk about all about this in the book, which is out February 25th, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Dr. Walls has made such great contributions. I'm so excited to potentially collaborate with her on a study in the future. We certainly disagree about the utility of leafy greens in the human diet. One of the things that I would mention is that I think of these as probably some of the worst things that we can eat from a plant toxicity standpoint, but it's working for Dr. Walls, so we have to study it. We have to think about it. It's also interesting to note that she is eating meat, and she's sourcing very well, and she's eating organ meats, and really, a lot of what was happening with her was the inclusion of meat and organ meats in her diet that was so valuable, so... Super interesting podcast, you guys. Stay ready for the book, February 25th, thecarnivorecodebook.com. Leave me a review on iTunes if you like this podcast. I love doing it. And you know what? It allows me to share these conversations, which I hope, hope, hope are valuable for all of you. And it lets me do my own radical thing and stay radical. Speaking of which, I've got a radical t-shirt. It's on my website under media. You can go to merchandise. And if you get the t-shirt and tag me on Instagram, I will repost it because I am so stoked that you are part of the tribe. You guys are all part of the tribe, whether you have the t-shirt or not, but you know what I mean. And I can't wait to see some people in the t-shirt at some of the conferences that I am going to in this year. So check out my website, carnivoremd.com. You can um, 
sign up for the newsletter there, which is the Fundamental Health Insider. It comes out on Sundays. It went out this past weekend. So if you are not signed up, you missed the boat. But you can get the next boat, which will be happening frequently. There are lots of boats this time of year because the book is coming out. So I'm super excited to share all of that information with you guys. CarnivoreMD.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Check out my stuff on Amazon, thecarnivorecodebook.com. I love and appreciate you guys all so much. Let me know how I can do better and let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know who you want to have on the podcast. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like and stay radical. Radical.